you know, faith family, it's amazing to me as I've been surveying the landscape of our culture, how uh, popular Marvel and DC and Star Wars has become. Have you all noticed it? It's unbelievable where you have all of these movies and shows that are just taking off. I was looking up recently the, the value of each of these uh, industries and these, these brands, and they're in the tens of billions of dollars of value amongst these things. And, and what they are are stories, stories of heroes who come and rescue those who are in danger. And the question I've been asking recently is, Why? Why are believers and unbelievers drawn to stories about rescuing? Well, it's because I believe as we study the scriptures and we apply it to the world around us, God has put it in the hearts of all people to desire a savior. God has put it in the hearts of all people, all people to have a redeemer, someone who will come and save them. Well, when we get to Acts chapter 3, we encounter someone who has been lame from birth, and they have suffered greatly. And then John and Peter encounter this man, and they tell him about the one who came to be the ultimate hero. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Please turn there with me as a faith family. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family, studying this great book, this historical narrative written by the Dr. Luke. Acts is volume two of a two-volume set. Uh, In fact, he he writes to a man named Theophilus. He tells us back in Luke chapter one, verses one through four, he says, I write to you, most excellent Theophilus, an orderly account this guy, Theophilus, we're, presume, we're presuming he's a wealthy man who has financially undergirded the writing ministry of Luke as he documents and interviews eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Jesus. And then you at the end of Luke 24, we have the resurrection of Jesus, and he then commissions his disciples. Then we get to Acts chapter 1, and Luke picks up right there in Acts chapter 1, specifically in verse 8, where, he t- where Jesus, before he ascends back up into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God the Father, he tells his disciples, but, the, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, what we see even happening as early as Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. Peter stands up, preaches the gospel, and thousands come to Christ, and the early church is formed. And then we get to Acts chapter 3, and we see a significant miracle that takes place in the life of this man. Now, whereas Acts 2 is Peter's Pentecost sermon, Acts 3 is Peter's colonnade sermon. He's now in the temple in Solomon's colonnade, also called Solomon's porch. It's on the exterior wall of the temple, and he's preaching to these thousands who have gathered. Now, in Acts 2, Peter is having to persuade the people that it's the disciples who are not drunk. It's the Spirit who has been at work. Then in Acts 3, Peter is having to persuade these people that it's not the disciples who have healed this man. It's a work of the Spirit. And as we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, the content of the sermon was often dictated by the audience. 
So as we get later into the book of Acts, we're going to see where the audience is more Gentile. They're, they have no Jewish upbringing, no Jewish heritage, no Jewish culture. And so usually Paul is preaching to a Gentile audience, and he does not use the Old Testament. He often uses creation and the conscience as a means of driving them to the gospel. But as we're seeing here in Acts chapter 3, Peter's audience is Jewish. They're familiar with the law. They know the Old Testament. I mean, they're right here even in the temple. So they're familiar with Jewish culture because this is their pedigree. This is who they are. And here is Peter about to preach the gospel. And notice what we're going to see in the text is that Peter uses the Old Testament to preach the gospel. Look with me in Acts chapter 3, beginning with verse 11. The scripture says, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's colonnade. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer released to you. You killed the source of life, whom God raised from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in his name, his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. So the faith that comes through Jesus has given him this perfect health in front of all of you. And now, brothers and sisters, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your leaders also did. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Heaven must receive him until the time of the restoration of all things, which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. You must listen to everything he tells you. And everyone who does not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from the people. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors. Sing to Abraham and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your evil ways. While they were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple police and the Sadducees confronted them because they were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them and took them into custody until the next day since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Here is Peter leveraging this opportunity, and he's using the Old Testament to preach the gospel. I want you to notice this morning in the text how the gospel reveals Jesus as the ultimate hero. I want you to see first in the text that the gospel is the power of Jesus to heal. It's the power of Jesus to heal. Right after this man was healed, he jumps up to his feet he begins walking and leaping and he's praising God for what he has just experienced. He is celebrating the physical healing and people recognize him. 
As soon as he comes into the temple holding on to Peter and John, people see him and they're like, oh, snap. That's the guy I gave money to. That's the lame beggar who's been sitting at the gate beautiful for day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. That's the guy who's been sitting there for so long. And as he's holding on to Peter and John, as he's jumping up and down, as he's shouting, as all of us would be getting to use our legs for the very first time, what we see here is that people sprint to him. Thousands of people come to see what's happening here in Solomon's colonnade. And they gather together. And Peter seizes this moment as an opportunity for the gospel. May I say to you, when crowds gather, it's an opportunity to preach the gospel. Okay, coaches in here, after your practice and you're huddling your team up, leverage the gospel. Share the gospel. Use it as a springboard to point your, your, your teammates to Christ. For my managers in here and bosses, when you have team meetings and you gather your employees together, leverage that moment for the gospel. Use it as an opportunity to point people to Jesus. There was a, a man in our church who works at a construction company. And every Friday, they buy donuts and juice for the, all the construction workers. And they all sit down and they share the gospel. And week after week, they're leading these guys to Christ. Use these gathering moments as an opportunity to point people to Jesus. Parents, when you have a time of dinner and you're sitting at the dinner table, leverage the gospel. You have a captive audience with your children and grandchildren and use that moment as an opportunity to preach the gospel. Here is Peter and he seizes this moment as an opportunity to point people to Jesus. I want to encourage you, look for opportunities when a crowd gathers, leverage that. A few years ago, I was in Mexico with several men from our church on a mission trip. We're working with the unreached people groups, uh, the Mayans, the Mayas right there in, in, in Mexico and doing a great work. It was amazing to see how the Lord is planting churches and doing a great work down there. And so one night we had finished up dinner as a team and we're walking back to our hotel and I see a bunch of teenage guys playing soccer on a basketball court. And I thought, here we go. So I go out there and I say, hey guys, can I play? And they're like, they don't speak any English. I don't speak any Spanish. So you can see where this is going, right? And so I just like, well, let, you know, play, you know, and so we all, we start passing all the way around. I'm like, okay, hey, let's, let's get a game. You versus me, right? Okay. So I get one guy from our team, Joe Davis. He's never played soccer in his life. And he's my goalie. And I've got these four other teenagers. And it's me and Joe versus these guys. And so I'm not, I'm not guys, I'm not here to brag. Okay. I'm not here to boast, but we beat him really easily. Okay. But in that moment, I said, hey, hey, everybody, everybody come in, everybody come in. And there was a guy on our team, Philip Haney, usually sits right there, I don't know if he's here today. Philip was there, and I said, hey, Philip, come here, come here, come here, because Philip speaks Spanish. And I said, Philip, I want you to translate for me. And we began sharing the gospel with these teenagers. And Philip's translating, and he's like, hey, can I slow down? You're talking way too fast. <laughs> hey, guys, when crowds gather, it's an opportunity for the gospel. Leverage that. Use. It doesn't mean you're going to lead everybody to Christ, but here is Peter using this moment where this man's been healed, thousands run, and he's like, well, here we go. It's an opportunity to point to Jesus, and that's what's happening here. He is using this moment to point them to Jesus. He seizes this moment, but did you notice what he's doing? He's pointing away from himself. He's pointing away from John, verse 12, because they are not the source of this miracle. It's amazing here in which they are quick to point what God has done to him and to give him the glory. Beloved, when God does something in your life, make sure you're quick to give him the glory. 
God will not give his glory to another. He will not share that with you. When you and I experience the Lord and he does the work, let's be quick to point to him and say, he is the one who has done this great work. Here are Peter and John, and and they're just like, hey, it's not about us. We didn't heal this dude. We're not the ones who raised him up. It's the power that's found in the name of Jesus. They're pointing to Jesus as the one who did this. And so Peter is pointing his Jewish audience to the gospel. Look at verse 13. He says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his servant, Jesus. Okay, how has he done this? Well, it's right there in the text. God was glorified when Jesus was tried, denied, crucified, and raised. We see it all right there in the text. God is talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his son, Jesus. How did he do this? The gospel. That verse 13, God glorified his servant Jesus through his suffering. That Jesus was tried before Pontius Pilate. The people denied, verse 14, the holy and righteous one. And the murderer, they had the murderer Barabbas released instead of Jesus. He was, verse 15, Jesus was killed by crucifixion. Jesus was nailed to the cross for the sins of the world. You see, Jesus is the source of life who died so that you will have life forever in him. Jesus gladly laid his life down for you at the cross. You are so loved. God knows you and he treasures you and he desires a relationship with you. And so he made a way through his son, Jesus. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified his son, Jesus, in the gospel. Here is Peter taking the Old Testament and doing a beeline straight to the cross. He's driving his audience to Jesus and what he came to accomplish. But did you notice how Peter's replacing responsibility for Jesus' suffering and death on the crowd? Verse 13, you handed Jesus over to Pilate. Verse 14, you denied the holy and righteous one. Verse 15, you killed the author of life. For it was this crowd months earlier that stood before Pontius Pilate at Antonia Fortress, and they were the ones yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Peter Peter here is boldly placing the responsibility of the death of Jesus on these people. Beloved, the gospel is offensive, and we must be willing to share the gospel in a way in which we are not the offense, but the gospel is. Paul says it like this in in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 1, uh, I believe it's verse 18, where he says, for the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You see, when you and I preach the gospel, we just gotta preach the truth. We just gotta tell people the truth. That's the most loving thing we can do. Now, it matters how you do it. You posture it with humility and grace and love, and yet we cannot pull punches Here is Peter saying, you killed the author of life. You are the one who denied the righteous and holy one. You are responsible. And yet, as he's bringing to bear the truth of the gospel, as he's not pulling punches, the reality is, y'all, he's also speaking to us. You killed the author of life. You denied the holy and righteous one. You see, you and I are responsible for the death of Jesus. Well, Kenneth, how can that be? That was 2,000 years ago. I wasn't even born. You see, your sin nailed Jesus to the cross. 
your disobedience and transgressions against his law, against his nature and character, we are the ones who nailed Jesus. It was my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. It was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And the beauty of the gospel is God raised him up. That death would not have the last word over Jesus. And may I say to you, death will not have the last word over you. If you are hidden in Christ, if you have believed the gospel, then you are no longer under condemnation. This morning I woke up at 4.30 in the morning. I couldn't sleep. And so I'm looking at Romans 8.1. And I was reminded once again with that great word, the word now. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I couldn't sleep after that. You see, this is what the gospel has accomplished. And here is Peter using the Old Testament to drive these people to Jesus, pointing to who he is. He, verse 15, God raised him from the dead. God raised up his son. Death could not hold him down. He's the conquering hero who triumphed even over death itself. And it's because of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus that this lame man has been healed. And may I say to you that it's because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that you have been healed. That all of your sins, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to Jesus and you bear them no more. That you have been washed, you have been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. We, we just sang this together, and as we were singing it, I, I turned to, to Isaiah uh, chapter 1, where Isaiah says, Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. The reason we, broken people, sinners who have been rescued by his grace, can gather and sing with gusto, because we know what Jesus has done for us. He has died, and he has been raised, and because the gospel is true, you have been raised with him. You and I are no longer spiritually lame, but we are now walking in Jesus and with Jesus. And it's not by our power, it's in the power of the name of Jesus. We see this back in verse 6 when Peter says, silver and gold I have not to give you, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. There's power in the name of Jesus. He is called, verses 13 and 26, the servant of God. He is called, verse 14, the holy and righteous one. He is called, verse 15, the source of life. He is called, verse 20, the Lord. He is called, verses 18 and 20, the Messiah. He is called, verse 22, a prophet. He is called, verse 25, Abraham's, Abraham's offspring, and his name is Jesus. This whole text is driving us to Christ. And I hope you and I can grab hold of what God is showing us here is that there is healing that is, that is found in the power of the gospel. That when you trust in Christ, you are healed of your sins. And may I say to you, there's coming a day in which you will be physically healed. On the last day, on the resurrection day, you will be healed. There's a transformation that's going to take place to these tents, these clay pots, these broken bodies. God is going to raise you up. 
Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. One day, you're going to have a glorified body. John, who's standing there, who is a part of this miracle, he would write later in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And so as you go through pain and suffering and baldness, that's me, y'all, As we go through hardship physically, it doesn't have the last word. When the doctor sits down with you and says, you have cancer, he doesn't have the last word. The Lord Jesus has the last word. And there's coming a day in which you will be perfectly healed. Just as this man stands up on his two feet on the very first time, there's coming a day in which God will stand you up on two glorified feet. Mm. I'm not sure about you, but that's worth waking up in the morning. That even though you face hardship and trial and struggle and you go through anxiety and you're just like, I don't know if I can get through this day, depression seems to be sinking into your heart, you make a sprint to the cross of Christ and you grab hold and don't let go. You grab hold of the promises that God has made to you that has been accomplished through his son. That right now you're going to suffer. That in this world you will have trials, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we see in Acts 3 is a snapshot of what is coming on the last day when we will be raised imperishable, raised in glory, raised in power, all because of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So today, behold the Savior who was tried, denied, crucified, and raised for you. He loves you and his gospel is the power of Jesus to heal all who trust in him. The second truth that we see Peter addressing here in the text is that the gospel was predicted by the prophets and fulfilled by Jesus. God is the author of Jesus' suffering and death. People were merely the instruments that God used to accomplish his greater purpose. Okay, the cross was not a surprise to Jesus. Okay, the cross was the very reason that he came. From eternity past, God predestined the death of his son. Now, for some, that's a controversial statement. I don't know why, because it's all over the Bible. This is the basis of Peter's argument that he's making here, that the entire Old Testament is pointing forward to the Messiah who will fulfill what the prophets said would happen. Now, let's not read verse 18 too quickly, okay? Let's look at it together. Let's go real slow. Verse 18, God fulfilled. Wow. God is the actor. He's the initiator. He is the who. He is the subject. He is the one who's doing the work. God fulfilled what he had predicted. Okay, so he started something and he's fulfilling it. How did he do this? Through all the prophets. So all the prophets in the Old Testament were pointing forward, hey, there's a Messiah coming. 
There's one who's coming who is the king. He's the savior. He is the Lord. And he says here in the text, verse 18, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. God fulfilled what he predicted. He is the author, the actor, the producer of all of his plans and purposes. The Jews were secondary actors, verse verse 17. They acted in ignorance. They were merely doing what God said they were going to do without themselves knowing that they were fulfilling what the prophets pointed forward to. And then they do it under their own volition. Now let's go to Starbucks and just think about that for a while. But let's not miss what Peter's doing here. I want you, I put this in your notes. Peter references in the text all the prophets. Okay, for the prophets not only taught truths about God, but pointed forward to his anointed son. Peter references Moses. For Moses wrote about a coming prophet, verse 22, one who must be listened to and obeyed. Or if they did not listen and obey this prophet, Jesus, they would be cut off from being the people of God. You see, unless the Jews believed upon the prophet Moses was pointing forward to, they would no longer be the people of God. That's a big statement, y'all. But that's the implication of verse 22. We want to see all people, Jews and Gentiles, come to a saving knowledge of the Messiah. His name is Jesus. This is what we labor for. This is what God has called us to do, is to point the world around us to Christ. And here, Peter is saying, Moses is testifying to this prophet. Peter then references Samuel and those after him. Now, it was Samuel who anointed David and gave him uh, the message, the covenant, that through his lineage, through the house of David, there would come another who would sit on David's throne forever. We see that Davidic covenant where Jesus is the one that has been promised to sit on the throne of David forever. Then Peter references verse 25, Abraham. That God made a covenant with Abraham that through him an offspring would come, Jesus, that through his lineage there would become a blessing that would bless the entire earth. Fast forward to Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus. He is of the lineage of, don't miss it, Abraham. It comes straight through the lineage. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. He is of the lineage of Abraham and David, and he is the one who sits on David's throne forever. He is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the promised Messiah, the one the entire Old Testament was pointing forward to. And so what we see here is Peter is using the Old Testament to drive people to Jesus. I hope I'm not beating a dead horse here, but the point is this, is that the Old Testament is Christian scripture. It's not the Old Testament and then the New Testament. It all goes together and it climaxes in the person and work of Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying here? It's right here in the text. I'm not making this up. It's amazing here. He's pointing us. Do you all realize what's happening here? That thousands of years before Jesus ever showed up on this scene, God was anticipating and preparing and 
proclaiming this is what it's going to be like. Here's what it's going to be like. The difference between you and I living on this side of the cross in history is we know his name. The saints in the Old Testament were saved in the same way that we are. Faith in the Messiah. Their faith was trusting that God would one day send a Messiah for them, one who would save them from their sins. They just didn't know his name yet. But you and I, on this side of eternity, we know his name. The mystery has been revealed to us that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the one that the prophets and Moses and David and Abraham were pointing forward to. So what does this mean for us? I put this in your notes. We've got to let the truth of God's providence propel our hearts to three things. The first is this. Let it prepare our hearts to worship in awe of the one who always accomplishes his sovereign plans and purposes. What amazes me about Peter is he's preaching a big God theology here. That God is not weak. He is not impotent. God is not a helpless bystander of world events. He is either directly or indirectly using all things for greater purposes. And the reality is this, that Romans 8.28, that, oh, somebody help me with it. For all, uh, help me again, I need it louder. For thank you, all things, yes. For all things work together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. Thank you so much. All things. Okay, what does all things mean? All things. Everything. All things work together for the good. That doesn't mean it feels good. That doesn't mean that everything's going to be awesome in your life. In fact, Jesus tells us the opposite. Peter says, and I believe it's 1 Timothy 3.16, where he says, um, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay? All things working together for your good doesn't mean it feels good, but it is good because we know the one who's ordaining it and orchestrating it for something bigger than we can see. And when we see how world events and the events that happen in our own lives are orchestrated by the sovereign king of the world, it compels us to worship him. To stand in awe of the one who is never panicked, never wringing his hands, worried about how things are going to turn out, but is ordaining all things for something bigger than we can see in this moment. So let the truth of God's providence that we see Peter laying out in Acts 3 propel us in worship. The second thing is let, let it propel us to rest that he sovereignly holds the world and your life in his hands. Beholding God's sovereignty means that you do not need to worry about this life. That anxiety, it focuses our our attention upon ourselves, upon uh, our situations, where God's word is pointing us away from us, pointing us to Christ and his character. You see, fear, worry, and anxiety are practical atheism. These emotions that you and I experience are a belief, they come from a belief that there is no God. And if there was, he needs our help to get what we want done accomplished. 
Y'all, let me tell you a little secret of the Bible. If you try and do God's job, it never works. Don't do God's job. That doesn't mean that we're a a let go and let God and we do nothing. There's a sense in which we we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We labor for the glory of God. We invest our lives in people and want to see the gospel advance. And yet at the same time, we emotionally have to say, I'm not going to worry or or be anxious. I'm going to take my eyes off of myself and I'm going to fix them upon the one who has it all together. The one who's working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose and we rest in him, rest. That the Sabbath is driving you to find rest in Jesus. That your soul does not need to be anxious and full of turmoil and worry. Rest in the Savior who's holding you in his omnipotent hands. Rest in the one who knows you and loves you and calls you by name. Rest in the one who knows the number of hairs on your head. Rest in the one who lets nothing happen to you apart from his permission. That the one who knows you and made you while you were still in your mother's womb loves you and calls you by name. Rest in him. When has he ever failed you? Never. doesn't mean life has always gone the way you wanted. But God is still here. And he's calling you to find rest in him. Thirdly, God's providence, it propels our hearts to trust his providential actions that happen in your life. As one who has believed the gospel, you can trust that nothing happens to you by chance. Y'all hear me on this. Luck, happenstance, coincidence are silly words that do not align with scripture. Nothing can touch you unless it first passes through God's omnipotent fingers. Remember when Job wanted, uh, when uh, Satan wanted to go after Job, Job one, Job two. Go home and read this afternoon. Satan had to check in with God first. What about your servant Job? It's then that God gives him the permission. What about my servant Job? Satan had to check in with God before he could even come and after Job and his family. It's amazing how God is the one who even providentially permits suffering for something bigger than can be seen in that moment. And here is Peter in this text preaching Christ and him crucified and saying God is up to something bigger than you can see. God is permitting the ultimate injustice, the death of his perfect innocent son so that those rebels us who trust in him by faith are received, restored, redeemed. We are now friends of God through Christ. So all of this to say, this leads us to the third and final thing we see in the text, is that the gospel must be proclaimed for the salvation of all people. As Peter is preaching, the man comes to shut him down. The police show up. While the Pharisees, they're the conservative, the conservatives, the Sadducees, they're the liberals. Okay, the, they deny the resurrection. They deny angels. They deny the supernatural powers. Well, they don't like that Peter's preaching the resurrection. They don't think it's real. And they don't like someone else drawing a crowd instead of them. And so they come and they, they arrest Peter and John and they haul them away. And as they're being taken away, just see what happens in the text, verse 4. 
5,000 come to Christ. What started with one man being healed now multiplies to thousands being healed. What started with something really small has multiplied in the hands of God into something far more significant. May I say there's no small act in the kingdom of God? God loves to take small things and turn them into big things. Take a small mustard seed of faith and multiply it to become one of the largest bushes and trees there is. It's amazing how God loves to take what is small and multiply it. He can take a few loaves of fish and he can multiply it for a meal for 5,000. And here is this one man whose life has been changed and the Spirit takes that and it transforms the lives of these 5,000 people. And so for us as followers of Jesus, we do what we can for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what may appear as small, the Lord is up to something bigger than we can see. And he is able to multiply our meager efforts for the advancement of the kingdom and the fame of his name. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's the impact point that we see happening here in the text? And it's this, preach Jesus, the hero we've all been waiting for. And we trust God with the results. That you take this gospel that is so precious and sweet and you proclaim it in its truth and you let the Lord be the one who saves. Yesterday, uh, I drove to Nashville to pick up my kids uh, from their grandparents. We met halfway, met at a Chick-fil-A. As we were there, I was wearing one of my Westwood t-shirts. It says, Jesus loves you more. And as we're finishing up our meal, we're about to walk out, and there's one of their workers, 17-year-old boy, walks up to me and goes, thank you so much for wearing that today. I needed that reminder. I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, man, thank you so much for serving us. I said, Jesus has changed my life and I just love telling people about him. And he said, me too. And it was right there in the middle of a Chick-fil-A restaurant that two brothers began to celebrate that they're no longer lame. We're no longer beggars. We're sons who have been brought into the kingdom reminding one another of the gospel that we preach Jesus, we point people to him, the ultimate hero. He's the hero of scripture. He's the hero of this church. He's the hero of your life. But you know what's better than Marvel and DC and Star Wars? Jesus is real. And he knows your name. And he's involved in your life. And he's working in 10 billion ways and you're aware of three. And he's holding you in his hand. And he's written your name in a book. And one day he's going to come and call you to himself. By name. The ultimate hero. Let's follow him. And let's point the world to him.